everyone, Rhoda here. As some of you may have heard by now, last week we got the sad news of the passing of Obi Adgar, a former guest of the podcast and someone I came to have a really close bond with. Obi passed away on August 30th, 2023, after a year-long battle with cancer. I'm so grateful that we got to know him through this interview, and I'll always be thankful that I got to know him in his last year of life. I will truly miss our conversations, his voice and stories, his willingness to always learn something new, like audacity or how to play the guitar, and his unabashed, earnest love for music, writing, and everyone he loved. We decided to re-release the original interview with Obi in his memory. We're thinking of his daughters, Sonia and Sadie, and their families, and wishing them strength and peace. May his memory be a blessing. The great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, without music, life would be a mistake. I firmly believe that. I have listened to the radio all my life. When just a boy, with the lights off in the family room where the old Phillips reigned, basking in the soft glow from the dial, I spent hours being transported by the radio to lands I would probably never see. Listening to the radio opened windows into languages and cultures I could only dream about. Outside our home, the real world went by. Inside, I scanned my world with one hand on the radio knob, a cup of tea on the table beside me. In Vietnam, while I served as a U.S. Army combat correspondent, my little transistor radio helped me escape to corners far away from the war's cruelty and stupidity, ugliness and waste, death and destruction. Every day, my little radio gave me one more chance to hear exotic music and voices, just in case it would be my last. An Assyrian growing up in Tehran, Iran, I discovered early on that our radio was my ticket to places I'd only read about or seen in Hollywood movies. I imagined myself as the fifth musketeer fighting for justice alongside D'Artagnan. I saw me falling in love with the portrait of Jean Tierney the way Dana Andrews did in the film classic Laura. And of course, I was William Holden, dancing by that river in Kansas with the stunning Kim Novak in Picnic. Like all of youth, mine had its own joys and sorrows, curiosities and anxieties, and my radio was the doorway that made my dreams more magical. I would turn the dial and find my own private box seat in the world's concert halls. The music was as diverse as the languages I heard and as colorful. It opened my ears to sound. That same sound created in me a thirst for music, as diverse as the lands that composed it. The languages I heard filled my ears with tones which years later I would use as a writer and a classical music radio announcer. The stories in Obi's opus are from those radio days. I still listen to radio, not as much as I did when I was a boy with a head full of dreams and all the time in the world to play with them. Radio has lost part of its luster in this age of explosive technology where you can link up with any part of the world in an instant but I still see it sparkle. My old radio, the one from the old country, is gone along with many of the other things from my youth. My new radio is a big black box with enough buttons to decorate a troop of dragoons. It probably pulls in far more radio stations than I ever could in the old days, but it is not the same. Some late nights now when I take a break from writing, 
I brew a pot of tea and sit in the dark, pushing the buttons and spinning the dial on my new radio. From the study in my home in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I once again travel to places beyond my reach. In those late hours, I dust off the gallery of images tucked away in my memory, taking flight once again to the faraway places I visited as a child. The only thing missing is the glow from the old Phillips dial. Hey everyone, Rhoda here. Welcome to episode 191 of the Assyrian Podcast. What you just heard is the introduction from Obi's Opus, a book written by today's guest, Obi Yadgar. I thought there was no better way to introduce Obi than through his own words. He's a radio announcer and a DJ, a writer, and a Vietnam War veteran. His passion for music and writing is as clear as his love for his late mother, his late wife, two daughters, and three grandsons. I'm always touched by the stories of successes and regrets from Assyrians who have lived in diaspora for a long time, and Obi's anecdotes and stories are no different. He sounds like a loving grandfather and an incredible dad and a wonderful husband who has seen and experienced loss and grief up close, but has also known joy in the depths of his soul, joy brought to him by true love for his family and for the music that continues to uplift him and has the power to save him in his darkest hours. As he works to write his memoir and continues to tell his story, I hope this interview too will be a piece of him shared with everyone who listens to this podcast and all those who love him. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. We love bringing you stories of Assyrians from around the world, and we hope you continue to listen and share our episodes. And now, without further ado, here's Obelit Obi Yadgar. It's always a pleasure for me to speak with an Assyrian. I miss uh, I miss Assyrians and the Assyrian sound and the Assyrian feel. I live in Wisconsin and there aren't many Assyrians here. Yeah, so I miss that. So it's it's my pleasure indeed. I think I first heard about you because we have a nomination form and somebody filled out the nomination form and said, we should talk to you um, on the podcast. And so I Googled you and I uh, started reading one of your books and followed you on Facebook. And I was like, I've got to talk to him. Um, This will be a fun conversation. So I've been looking forward to this. (laughs) The pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it. Funny enough, a couple weeks ago, we had an episode on the podcast called what is in a name and it was about the case for assyrian names um one of my colleagues adessa um, interviewed a bunch of people about naming traditions and how that has evolved in the assyrian community your name is not strange to me i had a childhood friend named obelite um and but i still am curious if you know your name story and how your parents came up with your name. Absolutely. Mine, uh, the, the person who came up with not my name was Robbie Binyamin Arsanos. Robbie Binyamin Arsanos, Fredun Autoraya, and another member. It, it, it was the Three Musketeers, so to speak. They were very much involved politically, literally, and and all of that and as you know Fredun Altaraya eventually ended up in Russia and and Ravi Binyamin Arsanos 
was the great Assyrian poet, playwright, uh, historian, you name it, he did it. And he's the one who named me. He was, he was my mother's uncle. He was my, my, my grandfather's brother. So uh, uh, he's the one who named me, and he named me after King Ashur Ubelit I, who ruled Mesopotamia around 1300 BC. And then he's one of the early kings who made Assyria a powerhouse. So my, my great uncle named me after him, Ubelit. And, and with that, without the Ashur prefix, just, just Obelit. And then the, growing up in Iran, everybody, everybody called me Obelit. When I came to the U.S. in high school, and I didn't know any English, and in high school, nobody could pronounce Obelit, and the teachers couldn't pronounce Obelit. So it got to be a pain in the neck, and one day one of the teachers said, Obi, your name is Obi, and I'm stuck. I've stuck ever since. Okay, so that's the history of my name. I always wonder um, about folks who have these historical names in the Assyrian community. If growing up, like you clearly know the story of your name and where it comes from, but was did you ever feel the sense of um, I don't I don't know if grandeur is the right word, but this sense that like my name has such historical impact or like historical context and and just history behind it and like nobody can pronounce it was there a frustration on your part about that in the early years there was and there was one one even in iran i was born in baghdad and when i was a year old from what family tells me when i was a year old the family moved to tehran and so we lived in Tehran, and and even there, people had difficulty pronouncing Obelit, Obelit. You know, in Assyrian at the house, it was Obelit, mm -hmm. but outside it was Obelit. Mm -hmm. uh, so so it, it it created confusions. And then back in the U.S., you know, Americans are not very good at pronouncing names. <laughs> they they tend to they tend to butcher them. And they just absolutely destroyed my name. I I really do feel do feel a connection uh, to my past to to King Ashurbelit, and and to 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 everything Assyrian. As you know, the Assyrian Empire extended into the Caucasus, into Anatolia, which is the current day Turkey, parts of Egypt, even and of course to the Persian Gulf and and so on. And and it really was a great empire. So one of my heartbreaks is the falling of the empire. In fact, we've my cousin Alfred, who's a filmmaker, and I have done a have done a little little video on on what I regret about our our empire falling and and that it never rose again. And I always wonder why. Why did it not rise again? That that that's a mystery that will always haunt me. Yeah. So we did an essay on this subject called "Looking for Lamassu." Looking for Lamassu, and and it's it's really quite good. I think it's quite good. Yeah.
Is it a video that um, we can access and watch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Vimo, Vienmo. Okay. What, what is that? Yeah, yeah. It's called Looking for Lamasu. Looking okay, for Lamasu. Cool. Yeah, I, Alfred did the, the did the editing and the filming, and I wrote the script and voiced it, and it was filmed. We filmed it in my studio and in, in my in my study at home, and and it turned out pretty good, actually. Yeah, it turned out pretty good. I'll find the video and we'll link it so that listeners can um, watch the video. Um, you talked about how you your family moved from Iraq to Tehran um, huh? when you were one. Why was that? Uh, you know, the usual migration. And, and yeah, because uh, actually my folks are from Iran. Uh, my mother and, and uh, most of them were born in Urmi. And Urmi, and in the village of Digala, yeah, Digala is is. Oh, I'm thinking about a 20 minute drushki ride from from the city of Urmi to Digala, and so my family's from there actually, yeah, all of them. And I've been to Digala many times, and I have a series of essays. I have uh, about 28 essays on my on my on my visits to to Urmi and sometimes I connected to Vietnam because I was in Vietnam and and, and my father was from Gangachan. Mm. Yeah. And people say that people from Gangachan are nuts. So <laughs> <laughs> I know they'll come after me. Uh, so they 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 met in, in Iraq, of course, married and all of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's the connection there. But but our our main our main connection is to Urmi because and, and our dialect is the dialect of the Urmujnai. You talk in um, one of your books about your connection to the radio and how you always listen to the radio, even as a kid um, growing up in Tehran. I'd love to hear more about that experience from you and what listening to the radio at a young age meant to you. Oh, sure. Yeah, and in fact, I wrote an essay on that, uh, which is part of a book I'm going to put together or maybe a podcast, I'm not sure yet, of the 28 essays, and I call them Musing with My Simavar. That's Cute. the title of the book, Musing with My Simavar. And and uh, my connection to radio, when I lived in Tehran, we had a shortwave radio. And in those days, you know, I'm looking at the 14th century. I mean, it goes that far back. In those days, we all had shortwave radio. And at night, I would frequently turn off the lights. And, and, and our radio was an old Philips. It was a, you know, big, big radio with, with fancy dials. And I would dial, dial in stations uh, as many as I could find, and I found many in uh, in 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 the Caucasus, and particularly in in Azerbaijan. And there was one radio station uh, that had uh, evening concerts, and I would frequently listen to them. And of course, they were heavy with. With, on 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 Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, Borodin, and all, you know all the great Russian composers, and I still remember the closing lines of the announcer. The announcer spoke in Turkish, Azerbaijani Turkish, 
and and I still remember his last his closing words. Bizim concert temiz kotalde. Our concert is over. I'm assuming that's that's the translation. And so that was my love for radio going way way back. And I've loved music all my life. I mean, I have loved music. I love music. And if I had a camera, I I would show you the the CDs packing packing the the cabinets here. Uh, I've loved music all my life and all kinds of music and i would listen to this show uh, a lot and when i came to the u.s when i came to the u.s i continued listening to music and i went through high school and then i'm a college dropout i didn't do well in college so i'm a dropout and what i know what i know comes from the streets what I know comes from the streets, and and uh, but music was always in the background. I listened to to early on to jazz. I listened to jazz quite a bit. In fact, my first radio show uh, as a DJ was a jazz show in San Diego. It was a cool jazz show. Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and and people like that. And I just absolutely loved jazz. And then I worked in St. Louis for a while for an NPR station there. And I did actually three shows. I did a classical music radio show at, from six to midnight, weeknights. And I did a did kind of a jazz show Saturday night. And I helped engineer a big band's show, Tommy Dorsey, Glenn Miller, and all of that. And it, it continued. It continued. And then from there, I... I uh, I moved on to Milwaukee. I worked for a radio station here that was all classical. I did morning drive, which was usually from 6 till 10, something like that. And, and uh, I, I chose my own music, Brahms and, 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 and uh, Vivaldi, uh, Aldo Vandini. Yeah, so, so, so I did that. I had music in my head all day, and that continued. I worked in Chicago for a while. At, at the WNIB radio in Chicago, and it was all classical. In 2002, I retired from radio. And then 20 years later, I went back into radio. What happened was uh, my wife passed away last year. We were married, my God, about 60 years. Wow. Ishti, ishti, 6-0. Wow. And, and we were married that long, and then she passed away and that just that just shattered my world i oh it just destroyed me and then one day uh, this must have been in august this this past august when things were really bleak oh, it was a dark day i mean within it was a dark day and i couldn't breathe it was that bad and then just out of the blue i decided to call the station i had listened to for many years asking, hey, uh, have you got a gig for me? As it happened, the general manager had been one of my old listeners. And, and when he saw the, the, the caller ID, yeah, 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 yeah. So he called me and we had a conversation. And, uh, and I believe November 4th, I started a Sunday morning show, just one hour from 8 to 9, just, just Sundays, 
And that's all classical music. And we call it Obi's Opus after my book. I play whatever I want. And and they never tell me what to do and what not to do. And that's a good thing because I know what I'm doing. <laughs> then so so in in that hour I I blend music from the Renaissance uh, to uh, classical period with Mozart to early Romantic Schumann late Romantic Tchaikovsky I blend that whole thing in one hour it doesn't give me much time you know you sneeze and the hour's over mm-hmm. so but 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 I am really enjoying myself and when I went on the air the first day the general manager was on the air with me so as to to introduce me to the audience and all of that not only that but help me with the equipment because i didn't know the equipment which was fine but the moment i turned on the microphone i kid you not the moment i turned it on it was as if 20 years ago were yesterday it was it was there it was there and I, and and i thoroughly enjoy it i just absolutely love it of it. It's me and microphone and it's my world. Yeah. Hey, you're in your element. I am. I am. A, a radio studio. I walk in a radio studio. I'm home. I feel very comfortable in a radio uh, studio. When I was in Vietnam, I was a combat correspondent with the 4th Infantry Division in the Central Highlands of, of Vietnam. And and in the big base camp, which was headquarters for the 4th Division, Camp Anari in the Central Highlands, uh, there, there was, of course, the motor pool where the tanks and the APCs and all, all that were kept. And these people put a little radio station in the motor pool. Uh, I think the radio station broadcast about an hour a day in the afternoon. And so I used to frequently go visit the DJs there, and they would put a put a record on, and all of a sudden a tank would start rumbling, moving, and that of course shakes the ground, and and you can you can see the needle on the on on the LP jump, you know. So it's an unusual place to put a radio station, but there you have it. And so that was that was part of my connection with the radio too. Although again, I was a correspondent with the infantry and then cover battles and all of that and go back to a base camp and write up the stories yeah so yeah yeah but my connection has always been with music and it's been heavy the the great philosopher friedrich nietzsche said without music life would be a mistake Mm -hmm. and i firmly believe that i really do you have to have music and i have music in my house all day it's always playing, whether it's jazz, whether it's Coltrane or Miles Davis, or whether it, it's 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 Brahms or Beethoven or Mozart, Haydn, and 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 all of all of these. It's music on all the time, and I just love it. My husband and I have had this conversation about if one of if you had to lose one of your senses, uh, which one? If you had the choice, um, which one would you not want to part with? And he always says uh, hearing because he can't imagine what life would be like if he couldn't listen to music. He is so right. I I damaged part of my hearing in Vietnam, artillery, because I, mm-hmm. I, I was in the artillery for 
for uh, just a short while and and one night uh, we, we had six guns six howitzers and i was on the sixth gun and one night we shot 800 rounds to from what i'm told a unit of the first air cavalry division had run had run into an ambush and we shot around them uh, i'm told 800 rounds that night and walked them out of the ambush and by morning i was deaf and eventually my hearing came back but my tinnitus never did yeah so i can't hear the silence of the night i can't hear that but at the same time i went in, i went into music it, it just really it's added so much joy to my life one more thing i stuttered growing up i stuttered heavily growing up i kid you not and and uh, and i worked on it myself just to get rid of it just again little by little i did and i eventually ended up on the radio go figure what a journey yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> it's been wonderful i'm struck by all the ways in which music has been a companion in your life through joys and sorrows but what i'm really struck by is the way in which going back to the radio and getting back to music pulled you out of your most recent sort of hole after the passing of your wife 60 years is a long time to spend with somebody it is it is and without that person i can imagine how your whole world gets turned upside down there's a way in which you've done everything a certain way for 60 years that's six decades it's so long but getting back to the radio and and the music pulled you out of that i'm really struck by that and the connection between that and what you talked about in vietnam and how you know there would be you're in the middle of a war and there was still a radio station for people to listen to music at night. And I wonder in what ways that was also a way for people to be able to deal with just the trauma of war and be able to escape in some way, but also like throw themselves into a piece of joy um, that would allow them to work through all the things they were going through. Oh sure, I I had a little transistor radio, and and I would I would frequently dial in and and try to find the station somewhere, and now and then I would find something. I never did find Brahms or Schumann or anything like that, but I found you know music from the Caucasus again, from China and 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 from various places, and what I especially craved what i especially craved was not only a good steak in the jungle just a little cold water you know canteen water stinks so <laughs> so just, just a little cold water just a little cold water and then i craved steaks i craved kipti <laughs> i craved shurva i craved our own music I craved a little Shekhani. Geez, somebody give me a Shekhani. And, and, uh, but, but of course, I never found any of that. You know, wherever you go, the Assyrians in you, you know, I mean, that, that, that's you. 
for me, of course, I'm an Assyrian. I'm a Syria. It, it, it's Autoraya. And, and wherever I go, because that spirit goes with you. It's in there, the language. But, you know, I crave the language. I think I told you earlier. I crave speaking it. I'm a little rusty because I have nobody to speak it to. And I, I just, I crave hearing it. And I crave crave the little Assyrian bombast. Nasha, mutmara. You know, you've heard that before. Yeah, of uh, course. I'm right. You're wrong. That's all there's to it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I did you grow up in a musical or music loving family? Did your parents no. listen to Assyrian music? No, no my parents, you know, of course, you know, occasionally we did, but uh, we really never had any encouragement in the arts. Mm -hmm. In the arts, you know, don't go in the arts, just become an engineer or become a doctor and 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 forget the arts. How can you forget the arts? The arts, the arts are are the soul of a nation, really. If you look at the Assyrian art and architecture, you know, this you're looking to ancient times, the con contribution Assyrians made to the arts, uh, to, to, to literature, to libraries, it's enormous. So that's part of our lives. You know, art is important. Two things I'm thinking about. One is I can hear this in the way you, you speak. Um, when we're having a conversation too. And I think what it reminds me of is like announcers who do sport sports broadcasting. Mm -hmm. um, when you listen to someone announcing a baseball game, they talk about it and they talk about everything that is happening to make you feel like you're actually there watching it. And there's a way in which they have to you choose their words so carefully to take you along this journey and i i hear you doing the same thing when you are explaining sitting with your grandmother in the village i can feel the breeze i can hear the sounds i can sort of visualize the whole scene did you have to practice to be able to do that or is that sort of descriptive work did that come naturally to you it comes naturally. One of the basic rules of radio is that it's, since you obviously don't see the audience, you talk to one person, not a big crowd, just one person, a friendly person. You talk to that person. And that's how, that's how you create intimacy because it's you, the equipment in front of you, your compact discs and LPs around you, and then the audience, the microphone, which which is which is your your conduit uh, to to the audience. So, if if you have to you have to create that intimacy, you have to pull them in into the same room, and yeah, that's how it starts. When I started in radio, I had a jazz little. I was again. This was for a short time in San Diego. It was a jazz show late at night. And and I guess I did it well enough. I'd get all these horny women calling me. <laughs> and you know, I could I could hear the 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 ice in their cocktail glass tingling. And and 
so 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 you have to create that you have to create that and years later years later when i worked in morning drive in milwaukee one morning and again i did all classical music and one morning i miscued a cd i was going to play something by vivaldi the, the great baroque composer but i miscued it and i played this deadly i mean this this thing was about the ugliest piece of music you've ever heard it, it was just a solo recorder at a quarter of seven in the morning and and uh, you, if you want you you can bleep me out on, on this one i get the phone rings and i answer and there's this guy in a in a in a quiet and dark voice he says of all the beautiful music in the world you have to play this shit <laughs> and he hangs up he hangs up and to this day i laugh about that the, uh, he was right uh, the piece was deadly i finally took it off the air i i put something else on and 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 we were we were okay so yeah yeah intimacy you've got to create that it, through the years, I got to know the audience, uh, but you know, by first name, and I'd get invitations to their homes. That comes with creating that intimacy. You know, we're part of each other. We're part of each other, and 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 I think that comes naturally. The same, the same as it, the way it did after twenty years. The moment I turned on the microphone, I was home. I didn't. I just kept rattling on and yeah 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 so it's it's uh yeah it, it's inside the same as writing you see writing is inside me i can't understand anything unless i write it down and write it down with a beautiful fountain pen oh i'm a fountain pen freak oh my god oh yeah pelicans and montblancs and 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 oh, ambassadors, and you name it. So, uh, and the first draft of whatever I write is always written in fountain pen. And then eventually, of course, I go to the computer and get everything organized, yeah. yeah. That's your instrument. It's like a what? musician who plays music. They have to have a good piece of equipment. And, and, <laughs> and I get good paper for it too. I get, there's a paper called Tomo River. Tomo River is made in Japan, made strictly for fountain pens, and things don't spread. The fountain, I mean, the writing is crisp. But really, that that's also one of the great joys of life, to, to see a word coming out of your mind, going through your hands and fingers and the pen, and then being printed on paper. It's It's absolutely lovely. It's absolutely lovely to see that. There's another thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about listening to the radio as a kid and how the act of listening to the radio has evolved over the years. Um, my family left Iran much later than than you did in, in the late, late 90s. And one of the memories I have is listening to Voice of America with my aunt and what we would do is we we would just lay in bed and and listen to the radio. Uh, we'd listen to the whatever programming was on. It was sort of our gateway to the outside world. And 
uh, content that was not moderated by the government. What I remember about that is that when we were listening to the programming, there was nothing else we were doing. There was this stillness. Um, whereas now if I'm listening to the radio, uh, my dad programmed uh, KQED, which is the Bay Area um, NPR station into my first car. Um, and that's all I ever listened to in the car. But if I'm listening to it, I'm I'm driving or I'm listening to something while I'm cleaning or doing the laundry. and I don't have that act of like stillness of sitting down and listening to the radio. And I wonder if that that evolution is something that you recognize as someone who is on the other end, who knows that people listening to you might be doing a whole host of things and they just have, you know, their their ear with you and how that has changed your experience maybe on the other end uh, or also maybe as a radio listener in the early days when i when i did morning drive morning drive is usually done from say from six to ten in the morning and uh, you know people are traveling so you keep your music short five minutes six minutes eight minutes and and uh, that's your limit that's how people listen I think it is a rare, rare occasion that at night you turn the radio on and listen to classical music and do whatever work you're doing. For one thing, there are no more classical music stations left. I mean, there might be one or two here, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. That's about it, which is, which is absolutely pathetic. But that's how it is. So in my, for my part, for my part, I just put on my music at, at night when I'm doing some work, I put on a, say, say a Schubert string quartet or Beethoven, Beethoven string quartet and, and just listen to them or Mozart or, or something nice and quiet or a Brahms symphony. As Brahms, especially when it's autumn, because when I hear Brahms, I see autumn colors. Uh, Brahms music to me represents the, the 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 bright reds, the fiery reds, the golds, the browns, uh, all all the wonderful earth colors in autumn. That's Brahms. That to me, anyway. That that's Brahms. And 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 uh, uh, when I want to seek true romance, I mean, just fall in love. I listen to Schumann, and I uh, I listen to Chopin. You know, the, the the great early romantics, because, I mean, romance oozes out of their music. So so at night, yeah, at night, uh, there is no classical radio anymore. So I just put on my own CDs, and they, these are the same CDs um, I use on my show, because everything on my show comes from my library. Yeah, so I, I do that, I, but, but classical radio is gone. It, it creates true inspiration for, for one thing, because there, there are so many elements in it. There are so many elements. You listen to Beethoven, for example. Beethoven, uh, Beethoven was so well read. He read Rumi, Ferdowsi, Sa'adi, all of these great Persian writers. And he, he read writers from other places of the world. He, of course, knew Goethe great German I mean, writer. In fact, there, there's a wonderful story about Beethoven and Goethe. 
and, and there are 37 versions of, of this story. Goethe and Beethoven were, were, were walking in the park in Vienna, were strolling in the park, having a conversation. And then uh, who comes up? Uh, the, the emperor's entourage approaches, you know, prince and princess and the emperor himself. And, and they approach. Goethe steps aside, takes his hat off and bows to the group, whereas Beethoven crosses his arms, purses his lips, and walks right through the throng, and everybody steps aside, including the emperor, for Beethoven, and Beethoven just goes straight through. And later on, Goethe says, in, in so many words, hey, man, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. This is the royalty. And Beethoven says, listen, there are a hundred princes, but there's only one Beethoven. And I love it. I love it. I love it. So, so you listen to this man's music, and it's absolutely incredible what he did because most of his 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 writing life he was deaf. Yeah. And he wrote the, the eighth symphony, ninth symphony, seventh symphony. The guy's deaf. God made only one Beethoven, and he put him on on the earth to to spread joy to people, really. Because there, there is no other Beethoven. That's it. Yeah, his whole story is incredible considering his circumstances and the fact that he was deaf, but like what he could produce uh, or compose in terms of music and the fact that we still listen to it. And, and not that we just listen to it, but it has been an inspiration for so much that has come after him. Um, you know, you hear his pieces referenced in other songs and in, in other works. And so it's incredible for one person to be that source of inspiration for so much in the world of music so, so many much. years later. So much indeed. That, that the same thing reflects uh, in the world of writers. I had the pleasure of interviewing John Updike and and oh my god i mean that this, this was a phone interview i think we did it for about 25 minutes or so and and i and i'm sitting there and just just listening to this man who was so casual uh non-condescending just just a sweet man and and he was just wonderful uh, years later i i interviewed vincent price the actor vincent price and oh my god to listen to this man speak the English language, it, ju it just made my mouth water. And it just, just a wonderful person to speak with. I mean, really so much class, so much class. Yeah, yeah. Oh, John Updike is the author who wrote Rabbit Run. Yep, that's John yep. Updike. Yeah, John Updike. Yeah. Oh, he, he was a great one. Oh my God. Uh, I really, in fact, I, I interviewed another writer, Lawrence Block. Lawrence Block is, is a mystery writer, and his main character was uh, something or other, Scudder. Some, I forget the last name. <clears throat> and in this novel, there's a character named Tekla Talazer. What? What? <laughs> I kid you not. I kid you not. I said, hold it, hold it, hold it. So we started talking about Tekla Talazer. We were friends right after that. <laughs> A lot of our listeners and even me, like the, the things I know about Vietnam are the things that I've read in 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 novels and in pieces that have emerged from that time. And and also 
music that emerged from that time, like protest music mm -hmm. um, against the war. Uh, I'm in Michigan or Detroit, so lots of Motown music came out around that time. I'm wondering what your experience was both being in Vietnam and then what was it like to come back home and find out how people were feeling about the war? It was sad that when, when the World War II soldier returned, he was hailed as the hero. And they were heroes. They were really heroes. I mean, the battles they fought, uh, just incredible. Uh, I got to Vietnam on Christmas Day, 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, 1967. 67, about a month or so after that, the big Tet Offensive started. And so it it was really a sad day. I was drafted and I was sent to Vietnam. Again, I spent my time there. I I I I wrote for the the various magazines and but I was still a soldier, two bandoliers of ammunition, rifle, and I always used to hide my camera because that would have been a perfect bullseye for a sniper. And so I would hide that. I would drape a handkerchief over it or something. Vietnam teaches you something that you don't forget. It teaches you war. And war, you don't forget because, because it becomes a part of you. I mean, I wasn't out there to kill anybody. I'm a nice guy. I, that, that, you know. And, and fortunately, fortunately, after a little while, I was switched to to the public information office which hosted our you know the combat correspondence so what we used to do we used to go out with the infantry and on search and destroy missions and and uh, and cover the battles and if things really got really bad we'd start shooting you know the hell with the camera forget it and and so then we would go back to the base camp for a few days, write up the stories, and the stories would go to Saigon, if I, if I remember correctly, and there they would be heavily edited, and then they were available for any news organization to pick up. So that was one experience, and I spent again a lot of scary nights with the infantry, uh, just just sitting again in villages or or in the jungle and just chatting with them, and I remember one guy who had spent one year in vietnam had fought many battles that was his last night in vietnam the next morning the chopper would would come in and pluck him out of the jungle and and fly him to his base camp where he would prepare but if i when i re, when i recall he just sat uh, with his arms around you know, clutched around his knees and just rocking and just rocking slowly, locking. He'd made it, not a scratch, a whole year in Vietnam. And 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 that teaches you a lot. Uh, another time we were on patrol, and I remember we, we took a break in the jungle. Uh, one guy sat about, oh, I don't know, maybe six, seven feet away from me, sat on the path. And as as he as it happened, he sat on a booby trapped grenade, so that when he got up, the pin pulled, and the grenade went off, and 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 he was badly wounded. Another guy, fifteen feet away, 
he got shrapnel wounds. I didn't get anything. I didn't get anything. So that teaches you something. The dark nights, uh, you, you look, you're sitting at on the perimeter behind a machine gun and the bush is just a few feet away and you hope the VC won't crawl upon you and cut your throat. And so all of those things stay with you. And then the laughter also. There was laughter. I was covering a unit bivouacked outside a torn up village and we had to dig in foxholes at night. So I sat on a foxhole with a Puerto Rican. And and so we, we started talking and you know, here's a here's a Puerto Rican and here's an Assyrian. We're in the same foxhole and the rice paddies in front of us. Fortunately, there was a full moon that night, so we weren't going to get any sapper attacks or anything like that. So, so we were talking. He, uh, I, I, I offered him a little raisin, and 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 he took the raisin, and and he had a toothache. He had a toothache. I, I said, you know, if you if you if you if you take a piece of garlic, and uh, I said, what what side is your toothache on? He said. I remember he said left side. I said, then take a gar piece of garlic and put it in your right ear, and that'll that'll take care of your your toothache. He said, what? Say what? <laughs> That's an old story from Urmi. I had heard that when I was very young. Hey, you have a toothache? <laughs> On the left side, put a piece of garlic in your right ear. That'll take care of it. So all through the night, I I would hear. <laughs> chuckling all through the night and the two of us just sat there sat there hoping the vc wouldn't attack us and this guy's from time to time chuckling <laughs> garlic and my what are you that there was a lot of, a lot of laughter too that stays with you so when you come back when you come back you bring all of that with you that many of us were sent to vietnam uh, really not believing in the war. I didn't believe in the war. I was living in the country. I was, the country gave me shelter. I had to do, I had to pay it back. You see, I had to do my part, whether I believed in the war or not. And and so that changes you. But but in reality, and, and I don't hide this, in a way, I wanted to go to Vietnam, not because I believed in the war. Oh, God, no. But I was a writer, you see, and I and I had to have that experience, and I had to have that experience, not knowing if I would ever come back alive. But I had to have that experience. Yeah, yeah. You said you had your camera with you. Do you still have photos that you took while you were there? No, the photos weren't mine. You see, oh. they, they they we we took them. You know that they of course went with the with the stories and again as we wrote up the stories the whole thing was was shipped i do, although i do have my my pentax camera from vietnam i have i still have it yeah no war war changes you and when we came back when we came back people people were criticizing us baby killers and this and that i didn't kill any babies and that that really was not a nice thing to do to to young men who had who had no choice? They we were sent there. You know, some some of course there were there was a lot of there, there were a lot of bad things going on in a war, as they do in any war. 
but not all of us were a part of that see and and that was so that was so hard that we we were really garbage coming back and we'd done our share and yeah. it feels like the anger and the frustration was misdirected um because so many soldiers didn't have a choice didn't want to be there there was a draft for god's sake so they all had to go unless they ran away to canada or something or right. there was a reason they could stay so it feels like there was frustration on maybe americans part for um not wanting their country to be involved somewhere that you know they felt like it shouldn't be but that anger shouldn't have been directed at people who were coming back who just did what they had to do. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, right, right. We had no choice. Mm. We had no choice. It was a very strange war. It was it was not a war. You didn't set, set out there to to win a war because mm -hmm. it was it, it really wasn't your war. Mm -hmm. That was not our war. You know, you have people who are fighting for their country. You know, somebody attacks the U.S., you think everybody's going to sit back and, oh, please, come on in. No. No. So so uh, we were not invited there, really. Mm -hmm. Well, South Vietnam did, but, you know, they didn't count. But yeah. uh, but all of that aside, we lost what, close to well, about 58,000 dead, some 500,000 wounded. And I think about that. I think about that. I I, I visited the Vietnam Monument in Washington, D.C., you know, that huge granite. Mm -hmm. And and I just stood there, just 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 mesmerized at this site, at all those names. And I lost some acquaintances there, too. And I think about them and 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 it was unfair. It was unfair what happened to us. But but, you know, you move on, you move on. But that will never leave you that stays with you have you in years since then obviously wars around the world have not stopped do you ever see similarities between what you experienced in vietnam and what others generations after you have experienced in iraq or afghanistan or other places around the world every soldier has a connection whether whether he fought in the napoleonic war or whether he fought in world war ii korean war vietnam iraq war one iraq war two there's a connection and and when you get together you talk you talk about oh yeah we did this and we did that i i, I had a good friend i had a good friend who's a civil war reenactor yeah, these, these, these are groups who reenact uh, the various units in the Civil War, the Southern units, the Northern units. Well, what is it, the, the 10th Wisconsin or the first? Uh, I, I, I forget the units. But when, they, when they're sitting around and talking, well, we did this to you at Shiloh. And and we did this to you at Cemetery Hill and all of that. It's it's we, we as if as if they're part of the northern soldiers, the southern soldiers. We did that. We did that. So so even even in that respect, there's a connection. There's a connection with 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 soldiers. When I go to the VA, you know, for various medical reasons. And and we're sitting in the waiting room, all soldiers, all former soldiers. And all of a sudden, 
you start talking. First Marine Division, Second Marine Division, First Infantry Division, First, first Air Cavalry, uh, 101st Airborne, 82nd Airborne. All of a sudden, there's a connection. Because once a soldier, you're always a soldier. That stays with you. That stays with you, and 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 that's one of one one of the great wonders of life, you know, because you have so many things to enrich your soul, to to enrich enrich your body, and 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 all of that creates memories, and memories. I have many of them. I have many of them, and and uh, I told you I've I've started my memoir. And this is going to be a, not I was born on such and such day, not not the typical memoir. It'll be sort of a, a, a stream of consciousness memoir, the way Jack Kerouac wrote, you know, stream of consciousness. So so it'll be that it'll be that kind of a memoir, not necessarily for publication, just for for the for my family to 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 remember me, for the grandsons to oh yeah yeah. That's what they call me, Poppy. That's what that's what Poppy did. Yeah, yeah. Just to just to tell, write write and tell them what their grandmother was like and how I met their grandmother and and what war is like and and what it's like to sit in the same room with a with a guy like Vincent Price and have a nice conversation, have a donut with a guy who 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 who's really so cultured. He had a magnificent art collection, Vincent Price. And, and and uh, I think I mentioned earlier the way he spoke the English language. Oh my God, <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really wonderful thing for you to do for your family because I wish that I had that. I never got to meet my grandfathers, uh, uh, either of them, and the stories I've heard about them from my parents or from my grandmas are far and few in between so i think that's a wonderful thing to leave uh your grandkids and um even beyond that so i, I love that you're doing that they they live right next door actually oh, my, that's my, awesome. my daughter my daughter sadie is a, is a labor and delivery nurse and and they live next door and the three i have three grandsons 14 10 and 5 and and they live next door a couple of years back, I had, I had to do a TV commercial for 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 a store, and they they needed the young kid to go with me. So I took Max. The the the, the oh, he was he was around nine at the time, and he and I both auditioned, both auditioned in a studio for the position. I got the gig, but young Max did didn't because he was too young. They wanted somebody, they got somebody at least two, three years older. But one of the greatest joys in my life was that morning auditioning with my grandson for this commercial, the two of us. The kid knew his lines instantly. It took me <laughs> half of the morning to remember my lines. I mean, he was that good. And and afterwards, afterwards, we 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 stopped at a someplace and had something to drink and had some ice cream you know how how much joy one can get from something like that i'll never forget that day uh, and and so so i hope i hope he too will remember that day uh, if he doesn't I, i'll for sure will mention it in the memoir hey max 
that's that's we did this together it was wonderful it was wonderful yeah. I did see that you're uh, you're maybe teaching him how to shave. Oh yes, oh yes. I'm I'm heavy into shaving. I mean, straight razors, and and I've been shaving with a straight razor for for some for for decades now, and and but I'm slowing down a little because uh, my precision isn't where it used to be in my hands. So I have to be careful, and you know, you're dealing with 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 an open blade. And so, yeah, and and uh, he's starting to get little fuzz. He's got a little stash there, and I started teaching him all all the correct techniques of shaving. Most men in the U.S. don't know how to shave because nobody taught them, and 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 they get five or razors with five or six blades. You've got five or six sharp blades scraping your skin. That's insane. That's insane. So, so I I set him up with his own shaving brush, his own cream, soap and cream, his own razor, his own styptic pencil in case he nicks himself, and just teaching him the techniques. Of, of how, how did you learn the technique? Well, they, 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 nobody taught me. Nobody taught me. But since since my twenties, I wanted to shave with a straight razor. Uh, you know, for some reason, I I suppose it was the romance of it. <laughs> And it took me, and you know, life got in the way, and I didn't get a chance to do it until many years later. And I started, I started with with uh, just just watching, watching videos, and and I knew some people, and eventually I I studied honing a razor, sharpening a razor. That that's that's it takes skill, and I studied with three of the greatest of them all. These guys are masters. I mean, they know everything about honing. So I figure I have a PhD in honing because I studied with these characters. And and it, it's, uh, for me, for me, just the act of making lather on your face with this beautiful brush and this, this great cream and soap and just create lather protection for your face and then sharpen your razor, strop your razor on a big leather thing, and then start shaving. And then it's you and the mirror and the equipment. So it's that hour or so you spend in the shave den away from everything. It's your world. It's you. And while I'm doing that, I'm thinking about writing. I'm thinking about pieces of music I should put in my show. And I'm thinking of all of that, and 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 it's absolute joy. It is absolute joy because it's you. This it, it really, in a way, it's a variation of the radio station. It's you and nobody else. It's you. So it's your world, and I enjoy it. So I'm trying to teach that to to Max, and hopefully he will teach it to Henry, who's the middle one, and hopefully. He'll teach it to to young Will. Young Will, provided he's not a tackle for the Green Bay Packers, because the kid is really stocky. Oh my God, he keeps bumping into things. Yeah, but I love them dearly, and and, and they're so much part of me, and my girls too. I have two daughters. Sadie is the younger one. Sadie is named after my mother. My mother's name was Sade. Yeah, and my mother passed away at age 35. 
Oh yeah, yeah. And I was about twelve years old or so. And I, to to this day, I think about her every day. I think I I think about my Yimmy every day, every day. And 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 oh, she was a sweetheart. She was a sweetheart. To to be a grown up and be able to speak to your mother. I didn't get that chance, and I really regret that. I really regret that. And, and uh, yeah, that was a big loss. But anyway, uh, it, it, it's so I, I try. I stay as close to my grandsons as possible, and and uh, I hope I hope they will impart that to to their children, to their children. My other daughter, Sonia is named after my grandmother, Sona. And she is she's in Minnesota. She's a dietitian and a network marketer and all of that. Yeah, yeah. You probably see her a lot on on uh, on Facebook, Sonia Schunenberg. If you see the name, that's my daughter. Oh, yeah, I she, think I have seen that yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, that that's my Sonia. Yeah. Oh. And she yeah, she calls them five times a day to check on me, seven days a week. Yeah, Aww. and the, and the I, next, next door checks on me constantly. <laughs> yeah. I I love that. I love that the family that you've you and your wife um, built together is so close knit. And um, I'm sorry to hear about the sort of losses you've been through in your life. Um, I can I can see how you know losing your mom at 12 would be hard uh were you close to your dad no not really my father my father uh my father was an alcoholic and and uh, and abusive mm. abusive to my mother and and uh, we've never forgiven him for that and and because she was such a wonderful person she really was she, she, she was just a sweet person and and my wife uh, raised the girls i mean the the both of us raised the girls the way my mother would would have raised us later on and and so in the early early on she of course raised us and and i think my brother and i i have an older brother in chicago and i think she did okay, even though uh, she left us so very young. Much of her remained with us and helped us in our journey uh, I, as we grew older, because I think we turned out to be good citizens and, and of a country. In fact, my mother had put us on the 1946 immigration quota, and her dream, America was her dream. She was going to come out here, and we were going to live happily ever after, and all of that. This this country was her dream, mm -hmm. but she didn't make it because we came in 1946. We came in 1957. We had to wait 11 years, and she died a couple of years before that. And 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 so that's another tragedy, yeah, in our mm -hmm. lives, in my life, that that she didn't get a chance to do that. But she made it possible for her two boys to do that, and in the end, uh, we 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 both, uh, I think, as I said, turned out to be decent people, decent citizens, and we gave 
to this country as it gave to us and and you have to do that yeah. to do that yeah yeah and, so, you, and you lived your you lived out your mom's dream um for for you oh yeah um, which i'm sure um would have made her proud <laughs> yeah i think so i uh, i'm i'm sure she would have been proud i'm sure she would have been proud but as i said one of the greatest regrets of my life is is when i didn't get a chance to, to sit with her say i was uh, say i was 45 and sit and just talk to my mother I never got that chance. And you know, when you're a kid, you don't really talk that much, that 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 much to, to your parents anyway. And and yeah, yeah, I miss that. I regret that. Yeah. Yeah. I can I can see that. I'm yeah. sorry that you have had to go through that, but um it sounds like the wonderful woman that your mom was had such a big impact on you and I think that's what parents hope for in whatever time they have with their kids, that they can help them become capable, independent people who will always look back to what they were taught as kids. And it sounds like your mom did that for you. Oh, she did. Yeah, she did. And, 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 and again, she was very Europeanized, my mother. Again, she was born in Degala and, and, and married in Iraq, came back to came back to Iran, uh, she she was very Europeanized, and I think, uh, uh, and, and, and really caring. She, she was really a good mother, and, and, and a sweet person, and a decent human being. And, and I remember once I had bought a little, little, tiny, little, tiny truck. I found it, some little store, didn't cost me much. And I went home and showed it to her, and she really praised my purchase. She she liked the, the way the truck looked and all of that. I will never forget that. Mm-hmm. I will never forget that that she said that, oh, that is a beautiful truck, she said. And so I I do that with the kids. With the kids uh, when they play soccer or or play flute or Max who's as at a German contest, German language contest that he speaks German pretty good. Yeah, and 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 yeah, another regret that I have uh, before I forget, I failed to teach my children Assyrian. I forget. Mm. Uh, I failed to do that, and and uh, because you know life gets in the way. You're working. You're trying to 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 bring food into the house. I. Uh, I, I regret. I regret that I did not teach them. I mean, they know a few words. Yeah, but I regret that. I wish I had. How did you and your wife meet? Oh, we met. Oh my God, we we met over a on a blind date over spaghetti dinner. I don't re- recall much of the spaghetti dinner, but uh, a good friend of mine uh, had. We were in college both. That's before I dropped out. He had an XKE Jaguar, and he was driving down the street in San Francisco one day, and right in the next lane, who pulls up? This gorgeous girl in, in, in a Jaguar sedan. So they started making signals and all of that, and they pulled over, and so she invited him to dinner, and she said, bring a couple of friends, because she had three roommates. 
and and uh, I didn't really want to go. He said, "Well, let's go." So, so we went, uh, and we paired off quickly. He, of course, uh, went with the, her name was Tanya. She was a gorgeous girl, just beautiful. And then Jack was the other guy. He went to, with with a girl named Lori, <laughs> who used to clomp around the apartment with these shoes, clomp, clomp. <laughs> oh, she was most unpleasant. <laughs> I didn't really care for her. And then, I, of course, there was Judy, and 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 my wife Judy, and and we hit it right off. We hit it right off. We danced, and and interestingly enough, the way she fit in my arms, it, it, it was unusual. It, I mean, I danced with other women, uh, but but this one, this one, just felt right, you know. So then, then the next day, oh, I asked her for a date after that night. So we were we were to meet at a restaurant, and the little shit stood me up. Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? So I sat there and waited for this girl. She never showed up. The next morning, I showed up at her work, just outside her work. When she left, oh hello, and then she turned red, blue, yellow, green, and I said, "What happened?" And she said she was afraid of me because I had a black turtleneck and I was trying to be a writer, black turtleneck and 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 uh, and a uh, corduroy jacket. And I guess I talked all kinds of nonsense about Hemingway and and F. Scott Fitzgerald. So that I scared her. And uh, but after that, so we started going out and uh, we stayed together after that. Uh, there were some partings, you know, I had to do this, do that, but we were together ever since. And then we eventually, we eloped actually, uh, we went to Reno. One, she, she was working after her office closed. Uh, we, did I have a car or she, oh, she had a little, little, little Austin Healy Sprite. It was just a tiny, <laughs> tiny little car. But uh, you know, we 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 drove to to Reno. We hit a snowstorm in the Sierra Nevadas, and we had to spend the night in, in an inn. Uh, and, and the next morning, we 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 were having breakfast at this inn, and the trees outside were covered in snow, and and it was such a such a novelistic scene. It really was, and I was writing it in my head. And as I said, I can't understand it unless I write it in my head. And then we we got married in Reno. I had my black black turtleneck on. I hadn't shaved for a few days, and she had her office suit on, and 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 we got married. Uh, yeah, in in Reno, at the Chapel of the Bells. No, no Elvis stuff, but there were a couple of characters as witnesses there. And yeah, yeah, so we got married, and really, we, that lasted sixty years. Oh, you know, we had our ups and downs, uh, mostly financially. I was out of work a couple of times, and things were hard. But that—that's a part of life, and we were together for all those years. And she, she was a wonderful girl. She really was, and and she put up with me, uh, and and she tried to fit. Yeah, and, and she fit fairly well in, in, in the Assyrian world. I once introduced her to a distant cousin of mine in San Francisco. I said, Auntie, this is my wife, Judy. And she looked up and down Judy and said, yeah, she's okay. So, 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> well, it sounds like a beautiful story, but more a, a beautiful and strong partnership. Um, the memory of which is cl so clearly um, with you and will be with you because of the impact you both had on each other. Yeah, yeah. She, she, she was at home among us Aryans. I mean, mm -hmm. she, she just felt at home. She cooked kipte. She cooked. She cooked. Uh, well, what did she do? Reza uh, and all of that. She learned to do that through the years. Never learned boishala, <laughs> and and couldn't stand the rishakle. Oh my God, <laughs> I made her sick. Oh hey, what's life without rishakle? Like, come on. <laughs> That's what my parents say, but I beg to defer. Rishakle <laughs> oh, and then and then Harisa, Harisa. <laughs> my brother still makes Harisa in Chicago, and he calls me. He says, "I made this beautiful Harisa, and I have a heart attack here. <laughs> I'd like to be there having having that Harisa." Oh yeah, yeah. There's nothing quite like Harisa for Christmas. That is my favorite um, time of the year to have Hadisa. Hadi, Hadisa. Hadisa is really heavenly food. It's just a simple thing. It takes time to make it, but mm -hmm. but but it's simple. And that, what is it? The, we, we throw coriander. Is it coriander? Ground coriander? Yeah, coriander. Yeah, coriander. And then that heavy butter. Oh, oh, oh my. <laughs> I mean, that's heaven. Yeah, the, but you know that's what I craved in Vietnam. I didn't crave fancy French dishes or Italian dishes. None of that. I craved. Give me some kipte. Yeah, somebody <laughs> make some kipte. I craved what, that. Somebody, what did you eat in Vietnam as a oh, soldier? Uh, we had, we had, we had uh, in base camps. We had the mess halls. Okay. And and you know you have your steaks and burgers and 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 and. And and the steaks, I don't know where they get got their steaks. We always said it's some probably some dead VC. <laughs> and and uh, when we were in the jungle, in the jungle, if the choppers could fly in some food for lunch or dinner, they did. But choppers couldn't fly in all the time because you know that that get shot down. So we had the sea rations. Yeah, sea rations and the sea rations have advanced considerably. There was spaghetti and then various bean dishes and, and so we had those. We had those and just just sit open up the can and chop away and and, and now and then you'd sit and shave, we'd get we'd get these damn plastic razors. Oh God. And 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 uh, make water in our helmet a little little uh, but anyway and I, I once told myself good lord if i ever get out of this place alive i'm not going to touch those things and i never did after that no uh, uh, -uh. <laughs> never did <laughs> yeah but but our food yeah we we uh, it was mostly sea ration in the jungle unless the choppers would fly in food i think for thanksgiving i was there at thanksgiving they flew in for lunch uh the chopper dropped the food off in, in big containers that, that kept the food hot. And and the chopper flew away, naturally. We ate, and the chopper came back and picked up the stuff and, and left. So, yeah, so that was our food. 
uh, it was a lot of beer. Jesus, I remember on New Year's Eve, I must have put away 15 cans of beer <laughs> and cigarettes, beer and cigarettes. And, and yeah, it's, it's an insane world. And, and toward the end, you're, you're, you, you have, you have the, these strange feelings. You're lying down somewhere, and then all of a sudden, something inside you says, hey, there's stuff coming in. And then moments later, the rockets would fall in and it mortars. So you, you you get this 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 strange extra sense that things are happening or will happen. That's that's all part of war. Yeah, that's all part of, and it stays with you forever. Yeah, yeah sounds like it. Obi, it has been so wonderful speaking with you. Oh, thank you. Thank I you. Thank appreciate you sharing so much of yourself and your story so openly. I have looked forward to talking to you for a long time and I am just so happy that we got to connect and you, um, like I said, you shared so much of yourself so openly. I, I really, really appreciate that. My pleasure. My pleasure. You're, you're an absolute delight to speak, Will. You are very welcome and I thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you next Tuesday.